If you have your Bible, uh, find Gospel of John chapter 10. As we make our way through the Gospel of John, we're coming back to chapter 10 again. We were here last week. We mainly thought through the first half of the chapter last week and the, the I am statements that are there. There's actually two of them in the, in the early part of the chapter 10. I am the door as well as I am the good shepherd. And we focused mainly our attention on I am the good shepherd and then the whole sheep shepherd imagery there. We didn't spend as much time on I am the door of the sheep per se because the, the, the real uh, uh, import of that I am statement, the meaning of it really is captured also again later in another I am statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So we focus mainly our attention on I am the, I am the good shepherd and that whole shepherd imagery um, last week. Today we're coming back for the rest of the chapter to think more closely through the second half specifically verses 22 through 42, the end of the chapter, where Jesus is, Jesus is in conversation again with the Jewish rulers. Uh, this is actually just, this is not, um, I told you last week that the first half of chapter 10 was, despite a chapter division, this was still a seamless conversation from the previous chapter, chapter 9. Uh, when we come to the second half, we're different different time. It's not still in the same conversation. I'll explain why in just a minute. What we're going to read about today is actually a couple of months after the events of the first half of the chapter, but the tension is what John's wanting you to get through this passage right here is the tension is still really high between Jesus and the Jewish rulers. Obviously, that's going to continue to intensify all the way to the end of the, the book, ending with a crucifixion of Jesus and, and subsequent resurrection, but um, there are two ways to look at our passage uh, that we're going to read in just a moment. Really, like there were two different ways to look at the passage last week. Uh, if you'll remember back to last week, on the, on the one hand, when Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd, taking on himself this, this shepherd imagery from the Old Testament. On the one hand, Jesus was saying that to the Jewish rulers uh, against them. Right? He was sort of claiming that they were failing as the shepherds of Israel. They were failing. They were falling short of being the good shepherds of Israel that, that they were supposed to be as the spiritual leaders of the people, like, the, like those were who were failing in Ezekiel's day. Remember, we read all of Ezekiel 34, just like that. So on the one hand, when Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd, and in this whole sheep shepherd imagery, he was using it negatively against the Jewish rulers. On the other hand, he used that same imagery uh, to be directed toward his people as a word of comfort and a word of hope. Not only are they failing as shepherds, I'm the good shepherd, right? And, and he meant that as a word of, of hope and comfort to his people that he was the Savior from their sins. Well, we come to the second half of the chapter today, same thing going on again. On the one hand, he's what we read it in a minute, he's speaking against the rulers, against the Jewish religious leaders. But on the other hand, John is clearly presenting what Jesus says here as a comfort to sinners and, 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 and sinners who know they need a Savior. So as we come to this passage, I want to I point out how Jesus is using this against the rulers. But I want to spend more of our time on Jesus as a hope for sinners in what is said here. So um, that's the bigger point. 
So I want us to read the passage, and then we'll think through it together. So John 10, I'll begin reading in verse 22 and read through the end of the chapter. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? And he quotes Psalm 82, 6. I said you are gods. If, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and Scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him, whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I'm, not, if I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Let's pray. Father, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. As we come to it this morning... We do not grow weary in, in confessing uh, that about your word, but we do it to remind ourselves of its importance and ask you to give us eyes to see the truth that is here. Would you please give us not only eyes to see the truth, but minds to understand it and hearts to embrace, love, care about, and see as important what you say here. Would you give us wills to obey whatever it calls us to do? Please give us all ears to hear, including myself, and give me the help that I need to teach. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, first of all, I want to say a word about a couple of the details that John gives us at the very beginning of this passage about time and place. John is real good about giving us setting details, and they're always sort of important and pertinent to the story. I want to say a couple of words about that. There aren't really any throwaway or unnecessary details in the gospel. Pretty much, and I, I always point it out because in your own study of the word, I want you to notice things like that and, and do a little digging about these things. Pretty much any, always, anything he gives us about time and place or any other setting details um, are important to give some kind of um, clue for the significance 
or the meaning of the passage. So then after saying a word about, saying a word about the setting, I want us to think about two basic realities, just two basic points uh, from this passage. Uh, first, the trustworthiness of Jesus. The trustworthiness of Jesus. On this point, the focus is on the stress throughout the passage that Jesus puts on his word and his works. His word and his works. He, three different times in this brief passage that comes up. The trustworthiness of Jesus. It's an encouraging point. And then secondly, in addition to the trustworthiness of Jesus, the second point is the unexpected mercy of Jesus. The unexpected mercy mercy of Jesus. This may be the most encouraging aspect, at least it is to me, about this passage. So just those two truths ought to give us plenty to think about. So let's get our bearings on the setting that John paints for us, and then we'll dive more deeply into the rest of the passage. So like I said, John gives us two clues as to time and place. And at least to me, not only are they interesting, but at least one of these clues, I think, adds a little significance to the conversation that Jesus has here with the Jewish rulers. Uh, the first setting detail we find is right there at the outset in verse 22 where John tells us that it was at the time of the, the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem. What was the Feast of Dedication? Um, well, you could look, you could scour the Old Testament for any kind of reference to the Feast of Dedication and you won't find it there. The Jewish Feast of Dedication is not one of their feasts. Every feast we've come to so far in John had its roots in the Old Testament. But this particular feast of the Jews does not have its roots in the Old Testament. It is not a, a Jewish feast or festival that, um, that was commanded by the Lord for the people to observe. Like it, it, it um, yeah, so it ha where, it, if not, what is it? It has its root not in the Old Testament, but in the time between the Old and New Testaments. So in that time period, after Malachi, before Matthew, that is where you find the origin of this Feast of Dedication. Um, quick, quick history. Um, well, and, and it goes, we, they still celebrate it today. It has, it has a name called Hanukkah. <laughs> so this is what we're talking about. So this is Hanukkah. It was during the time of Hanukkah. So we're, what's the history of Hanukkah? Uh, that, that, that might be pertinent here. Quick history. You, you might have you heard of Alexander the Great. So uh, he was a, a Greek, and he, uh, he lived and ruled roughly a couple of hundred years before Christ. Um, and he, in his young life, basically ruled most of the known world. Uh, he was an incredible military leader and he ruled most of the known world including Jerusalem and Judea and Palestine that whole area uh, you may know the story that even at a young age Alexander the Great got sick died young died quickly but before he died he entrusted his kingdom to four of his trusted men split it up in four ways uh, gave each of them a fourth of the kingdom and so after his death a, a few years passed with the kingdom split up like that and uh, uh, as some time passed in the area that that included Jerusalem and Judea a man a, another Greek ruler named Antiochus Epiphanes ruled over that that area Antiochus Epiphanes he was not a good dude uh, he was also Greek he gave himself the nickname Epiphanes where we get our word epiphany, which means an epiphany, a, a, 
a manifestation of an appearing of what? In his own mind, he was a manifestation of one of the gods. He was a proud man. He, he thought he was one of the gods in flesh. And he wanted to impose Greek culture, Greek polytheistic religion on the Jews in Jerusalem. And in 167 A.D., he came down hard in Jerusalem. He, he uh, ransacked the temple there in Jerusalem. He tore down the altar to the Lord and built his own altar to idols right there in the temple. He sacrificed pigs and to what to the Jews were other unclean animals to idols on the altar of God there in the temple. And he forbade the people of Israel, he forbade the Jews to live according to the law of Moses. He did not allow them to follow the customs and the laws set forth in the law of Moses. Would not allow them to circumcise their children. Would not allow them to do anything according to the law of Moses. And he carried out his seriousness of that command by putting to death, you can read the history, putting to death in really gruesome ways those whom were caught obeying the law of Moses. You might have also heard of the Maccabees. Maybe heard of a, a, a book that some include in their copy of the Bible called the Maccabees. Well, the Maccabees were a prominent Jewish family in Jerusalem in those days who refused to compromise. They refused to uh, give up the law of Moses. They, they refused to compromise being obedient to the law of Moses. And they, to make a long story short, led a revolt. They gathered a lot of people and they led a revolt against Antiochus Epiphanes and his, his men. And in 164, so three years after he had ransacked the temple, in 164 B.C., they won the battle. They won the battle against Antiochus. And they, uh, in December of that year, they restored the temple. They took down his idolatrous uh, altar. They rebuilt the altar of God there in the temple. They restored worship according to the law of Moses, according to the will of God, and it was in celebration of that. It was in that celebration that they celebrated with a feast for eight days, right? The restoration and the rededication of the temple. Um, and it, they, they lit eight cam candles. We get the menorah and the, and the eight candles, right? And they, and they uh, they lit a new candle each day for eight days, and they rededicated themselves to the worship of God according to his law and, and rededicating the temple. So Hanukkah comes from the Hebrew word meaning to dedicate or dedication. And uh, they were dedicating themselves to the Lord and to the temple. Um, it's also called the Festival of Lights sometimes because of the candles and the, the light. Anyway, that they've celebrated that feast in December every year since and so uh, we're at Hanukkah and hence John tells us in verse 22 it was winter and I think here's what I think I think that John mentions this feast for a good reason I don't believe he's mentioning this feast as we've seen in other times in John's gospel to say that in some way Jesus fulfills this feast right why would I not why would I say that because again this is not a feast that was given in the Old Testament. This was not a feast that God himself had commanded in order for Christ to fulfill. This was a man-made uh, 
feast or festival. So it wasn't something that Jesus was meant to fulfill. But I believe that John mentions this here not just as a time stamp. Oh, by the way, this is when this was happening. But also to give you a hint as to what was likely the mindset of the people. What was the mindset, especially of the Jewish rulers, on, in this particular episode? And what it tells you is, is especially among the, among the people and especially the rulers, it was probably a, in their minds a time of heightened dedication. Almost like what Christmas time is like to a lot of people, right? Even in our culture, who aren't particularly faithful Christians, when it's Christmas time, everybody feels all special inside and feels sort of, re, let's rededicate ourselves to the Lord a little bit. They probably... It was a time of heightened dedication to the Lord and worshiping according to His will. And what I think that does is it adds to the irony of this passage. It adds to the irony that here they are. They continue steadfastly in rejection, in rejection of the one through whom God said we must come in true worship and, 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 do it, and to do it according to His will. In even in their time of we want to dedicate ourselves to the Lord and we want to dedicate ourselves to the worship of Him according to His will, even in the midst of all that, in rejecting Jesus, they were rejecting the true temple. And they were rejecting the only way we can really dedicate ourselves to the worship of God according to His will. The irony is really thick. The other setting detail that was given here is in verse 23 where it simply says Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. In the colonnade of Solomon, which was on the east side of the temple. And that would have made sense, by the way, that Jesus might have been walking there on this particular day instead of out in the open courtyards of the temple because, like it said, it was winter. It was December. It was cold. And so it, instead of out in the open, you were in this court sort of covered colonnade section. The other thing about this, at least to me it's just interesting to think about, is it, is it is in this same place, the colonnade of Solomon, or sometimes referred to later in the New Testament, the book of Acts, as Solomon's portico. It's in this very same place that this is about to take place where just a few months later the early church would gather in the book of Acts. It's right, it is right here where in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John go up to this beggar and say, I don't have any silver and gold, but what I do have for you in the name of Jesus get up and walk and he got up and walked and a crowd gathered right here in Solomon's colonnade and Peter preached the gospel to them and many were saved on that day or just two chapters later in Acts chapter 5 right after the the death of Ananias and Sapphira the church were, was gathered in Solomon's colonnade and the people held them in great fear and esteem I don't know I just love letting things like this add much more vivid reality and imagination to my mind when I'm reading the New Testament. So having set the stage a little bit for where and when all of this takes place, let's turn our attention to the meat of the passage and the first of the two main truths I want us to see here, which is the trustworthiness of Jesus. John tells us that uh, it was when Jesus was walking in the colonnade of Solomon that the Jewish religious leaders came up to him, sort of surrounded him there in, in, in the colonnade, and, and they pressure him in verse 24, saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. 
it's kind of a crazy thing to say, really. Why? Well, Jesus is about to tell them. He immediately replies in verse 25, I told you, and you do not believe. I almost wish, sometimes you, there, you just almost wish there were things that, that were in the Bible that aren't. I almost wish that when he said, I told you, that they said, when? I almost wish they had said that. Because I would love to see what Jesus would have said to their when. Uh, to see what he could have said. What could he have said? Let's just take a journey back through the Gospel of John, shall we? Um, turn back to chapter 1. Let's start there. Jim T Hamilton has a great list of these kinds of statements in his commentary on John. I really commend it to you. Let's just see some of these things and let it sink in. Just flip with me as we look. We'll move through it quickly. I don't think it'll take long to see the idiocy of their question. So if you're in chapter 1, at the very end of the chapter, the last verse, in fact, in chapter 51, just thinking back to what we said in those early weeks, in verse 51, Jesus is basically claiming to be the fulfillment of Jacob's vision of a ladder reaching to heaven in Genesis 28. Claiming by, by saying, now he says that the angels of, of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus is claiming to be the bridge between heaven and earth. Claiming to have come from heaven. Claiming to be uh, not only the Messiah himself who bridges heaven and earth, but also claiming to be God himself right there in chapter 1, verse 51. You might, somebody might object, well, he's only speaking to Philip and Nathaniel. He's only speaking to two of his future disciples. He's not talking to the religious leaders, so, okay, well, then flip to chapter 3. And now, in chapter 3, he's talking to one of the highest-ranking Pharisees at all, named Nicodemus. And in chapter 3, verse 13, you'll recall, when it says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Right there when Jesus said those words, he's talking to a high, the, the, the main teacher among the Pharisees, Nicodemus. He's telling him that he is the Son of Man prophesied in the prophet Daniel who would come and, 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 and hence be the Messiah. Talking to a Pharisee saying that. You might object, well, he's only speaking to one Pharisee. And even that was at night. He didn't want anybody else to be there or to see him there. Okay, well, then flip to chapter 5. And here in chapter 5, Jesus, remember, was out in public in Jerusalem. And not just any place in Jerusalem, but in the temple in Jerusalem. And not just at any time, but John tells us in verse 1 that it was during a Jewish feast when scores of people would have been not only in Jerusalem, but in the temple while he was there. And it is in that chapter when he stands up and to all the crowds publicly in the middle of the day, during a Jewish feast, he says to the crowds among whom the Jewish rulers would have been standing uh, that, that, he, that he calls God his Father and that he is the Son of God, which in verse 18 in chapter 5 made the Jewish rulers want to kill him for blasphemy because they, they said he was making himself equal with God. But Jesus persists in that same chapter, and he says in verse 21, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, 
so also the Son gives life to whom He will. So not in that one sentence, not only does He say He has the same life-giving divine power and ability as God the Father, He has the same sovereign will as the Father. He gives life to whom He will, a prerogative that only God possesses. And in verse 39 of this chapter, 39 of, of, of chapter 5, he tells the Jewish rulers that all the Bible is about me. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me. He's saying, I'm the fulfillment of all the Old Testament, talking to the Jewish rulers. And he says explicitly in verse 46, whenever you read Moses' writing, Moses is writing about me. I mean, I don't, I don't know how anybody objects to the clarity of that chapter. But just for thoroughness' sake, let's keep going. We come to chapter 6, and Jesus tells the crowds, not anything in isolation. He tells the crowds in verses 35 and again in verse 48, I am the bread of life, taking an I am statement on himself. Bread of life saying I'm the fulfillment of all the bread imagery in the Old Testament. And in verse 38, it's, it's, I, he, he says that I have come down out of heaven. Repeating in verse 41, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. And the verse right before that, it's by believing in him that a person has eternal life. Or then in chapter 7, right in the middle of the Feast of Booths, or often called the Feast of Tabernacles, one of the most popular feasts of the Jewish calendar in that day, right in the middle of the Feast of Booths, as the crowds gathered, including the Jewish rulers, he claimed in verse 16 that his teaching is what the, God the Father was speaking through him. And, and again, in verses 28 and again in verse 34, he tells them that he has come down from heaven to do the Father's will. Again in chapter 8, he claims in verse 12 to be the, I am the light of the world. I am statement, light of the world, right in the middle of this uh, at, the, at the climactic point of the Feast of Booths, saying he is publicly, publicly saying, I am the fulfillment of this whole feast. When God told you, the Jews, to, to, to celebrate this feast, why did he do it? So that you would recognize me when I came. It's about me. And in verse 42 of chapter 8, he tells them that, it, that they do not love God the Father if they do not love him. That's bold. That to love and worship Jesus is to love and worship the Father too. And if they didn't get that, he tells them in verse 58, before Abraham was, I am. Not I'm really, really super old, I'm eternal. And they got that because they picked up stones to stone him to death for saying it. And in chapter 9, he tells the formerly blind man, if you're looking at chapter 9, he heals that blind man, and at the, in, in verses 35 to 38 of that chapter, at the end of that chapter, in those verses, Jesus, right in front, right in front of the, it's like the, it's like the, the Jewish rulers were uh, standing there watching all this happen. I don't necessarily commend movies to you, but in the movie Tombstone, there's a part where uh, somebody's watching, they're having a conversation, and he says, oh, Johnny, I forgot you were there. You may go now. It's like they're standing there just, watching on all of this happen and right there in front of them as they are watching on Jesus tells this formerly blind man that he is the son of man prophesied by Daniel and he accepts this man's worship 
I mean, the man worships him as God right in front of the rulers, and he does nothing about it but accept it. And he even tells them in chapter 10, our present chapter in verse 18, that he has the authority of God to rise from the dead even if they should put him to death. Now, with all of that in mind, they come to him in verse 24. How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. I mean, how thick are you? Can you imagine the look on Jesus' face? Going through that long list, chapter by chapter, and knowing also that that was a painfully selective list. We've spent months looking through these chapters, right? Not even close to all the testimony in those chapters. It gives you a little perspective when Jesus says in verse 25, I told you. The problem is they don't believe and they don't want to believe. And he went even further. In his complete astonishment of at their tell us plainly, he humiliates them by telling them, even if you don't want to believe what I've told you plainly, more times than you can count, you've got to do something with all the things that I have done that you cannot do away with. You have to deal with my works. That's what he says in verse 25. I told you, and you do not believe, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. And he says it again in verse 38. Even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Good night. I mean, we're going to get to the works in just a minute, but just listen to the things he says. Not just the Father is in me. And so I'm especially endowed with some kind of power. I am in the Father. Wow. But what works is he talking about? If you don't believe my words, believe the works. What works is he talking about? Oh, I don't know. Publicly turning water into wine at a public wedding in chapter 2? The kind of works that in chapter 3, verse 2, Nicodemus has to recognize that you're from God in some way. Nobody could do the kinds of things that you do, the works that you do, unless you were from God. Or maybe, I don't know, telling in chapter 4, the woman at the well, all about her life when she had never met him before. Oh, I don't know, maybe in chapter 5, healing an invalid man of 38 years. And oh yeah, in the middle of a Jewish feast, and in the middle of the temple, and in the middle of the crowds. I don't know, in chapter 6, maybe feeding uh, more than 5,000, thousands of people with just a little bit of food. And then right, right after that, just walking on the dadgum water. That stuff gets around pretty quickly. And don't forget the most recent example in chapter 9 of Jesus giving sight to a blind man. Even the blind man said, you ever heard of a thing like that? And we're just halfway through this gospel. Why draw all of their attention and ours to all of this? One, to condemn them. To condemn them. How deaf and blind do you have to be? Tell us plainly, really? But not just to condemn them, but also, and to do that in an exceedingly embarrassing fashion, but also to deeply encourage us that Jesus is who he says he is. I mean, it might be hard to believe everything Jesus 
said about himself, if it's the first time you're ever hearing somebody talk like that, until you think about all the things that he did. And somebody might, somebody might say, well, how can you be so sure that Jesus actually did all those things that he did? Come on, man. Historians outside of the Bible, even at that time, even those historians who were not Christians and had no vested interest in perpetuating Christianity or giving it a good name, they write and confirm historically, confirming many of the things that Jesus did recorded for us in Scripture. And perhaps the most influential and monumental work on this issue is Richard Baucom's classic work, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, where for 600 pages... For 600 pages, he painstakingly examines all four Gospels, name by name, mentioned in the Gospels, showing how these Gospels were written by eyewitnesses. And whenever you see names of other people pop up in the Gospels, that's Matthew or Mark or Luke or John. They're name-dropping these people on purpose to indicate you know where I got this story? From this guy who was an eyewitness. If you doubt what I'm saying, go ask him. He's still alive. All written within their lifetimes who could and would have refute, refuted them if they were not true. How do you know they would have refuted them if they were true? How do you know they would have? Their lives were at stake. If you doubt the truthfulness of history... The kind of history that is so overwhelmingly affirmed and confirmed, you undercut your ability or grounds for believing anything. Nobody lives that way. Jesus is trustworthy. His word and works. The longer you think about his words, you're drawn back to his works. And the more you think about his works, it draws you to his words. Just as Jesus and John who recorded it in this gospel, they wanted to leave no doubt about the truth and the trustworthiness of who Jesus is in order to condemn the unbelieving religious leaders. And he also did it to strengthen the faith and the hope and the joy of every believer who looks to him. But that leads us to the second truth we want to see here, that that is the unexpected mercy of Jesus. Let's think about that quickly. The unexpected mercy of Jesus. And about this, I just want to draw your attention to the bookends of this passage. I don't know if you noticed when we read through it at the beginning, but this passage begins and ends talking about belief and unbelief. In the middle, he's talking about word and works, but at the beginning and at the end, there's passages about belief and unbelief, and there's something to be learned here. On the front end of the passage, of course, we've been talking about already so far, you have the Jewish religious rulers who refuse to believe what Jesus said about himself and the salvation that is found in him, even despite his undeniable works staring them right in the face? That's at the beginning. On the, on the back end, you have the complete other end of the spectrum. In verses 40 to 42, where Jesus leaves Jerusalem altogether to go back out across the Jordan where he was in chapter 1, and there are crowds of people there out in the country, right, who are coming to him based on John the Baptist's testimony about him. And Jesus says in verse 42, many believed in him there. 
mean, the contrast could not be starker. And the contrast is a, is a deeply encouraging one, I think. Um, I want to think about it for just for a second. It's pretty simple, really. It's just the simple observation that from all outward appearances, those worldly speaking who seem most likely to be blessed of God and to know him are the ones, are the very ones who are too self-righteous to see their need for, need for Jesus. They don't believe and they forfeit his favor. On the other hand, outside the city, outside, outside, almost symbolically outside of the place where you would expect to find the favor of God, not in Jerusalem, but out in the country, out in the wilderness, outside in that place, outside of the place that God, quote-unquote, favors, you find those who need no confirming signs but act as if they were just waiting for him to come. Hear, about those that John, hear from him that John had told him about, and they believed. What do you take away from this? When you don't believe you deserve the faith, favor of Jesus, when you, don't, when, you, when you have a hard time believing, it's easy to believe about other people. It's hard to believe it of me. I believe that you have the favor of God, but when I'm, I know myself, and when you have a hard time believing you deserve the favor of Jesus and you, you don't feel like you're, that you're like those who seem to be so favored of God, but you so want his favor on you. That's where you find his mercy. His mercy is unexpected. You would expect to find it in Jerusalem. They didn't find it there. They found it out in the wilderness. Jesus looked square at the Jewish religious leaders in verse 26, and he told them, you do not believe because, because you are not part of my flock. You don't believe because you're not one of my sheep. They probably thought he was crazy. What do you mean? What do you mean? If anybody is his sheep, we are. They thought. Jesus says in verse 27, sheep believe. And those who were nameless, anonymous people across the river by the world's standards. That's where he found his sheep. And they believed. And they believed because they were part of his flock. They believed because they already had the favor of God on them. Contrary to the expect expectations of the robed and righteous favored by the world's standard in Jerusalem. This chapter is, and this particular passage in it, is amazing. It's a breathtaking reminder of who Jesus is, confirmed by all that he did. And just when you think there is no way on earth that he is all of that for you, he is. And that's precisely when and for whom he is all these things. 